Well, good morning, Grace Covenant Church. It is good to be with you, and I invite you to take God's Word and turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I think the first song I ever learned was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Anyone? I think for many of us, most of us, if not the first song we learned, certainly among the earliest songs that we learned. Uh, Sadly, there was a time in my life where I believed it was necessary for me to move beyond the simplicity of that childhood chorus and enter into the profundity of the Christian faith. And it was a huge mistake, and the older I get, the more I have come to realize you never get beyond Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that we are not called to grow up into something greater. We are called simply to revel daily in this simple yet profound biblical truth. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. There was a phrase coined, I think it was last century, maybe the century before, uh, the monotonous joy of infancy. It's a mouthful. Have you ever heard that phrase? The monotonous joy of infancy. I was reminded of it recently. Uh, A preacher referenced it. And basically, the monotonous joy of infancy refers to that tendency in infants to be amused by the same thing over and over and over again. And so there is two-year-old Susie sitting in her high chair at the kitchen table, and you sit down in front of her and you hide your face behind your hands, And then you quickly remove your hands and you utter something profound such as peekaboo. And it elicits what? An immediate response. And you get that wide mouth, closed eye, cheeks jiggling response of laughter. And then the word what? Again. And you do it again. And then what? Again. And then what? Again. By the 17th time, you're wondering why you ever started, and you're looking for some way to extract yourself from the situation because you are now trapped in the monotonous joy of infancy. You know what our problem is, folks? We grow up. And as Christians, at times, what ought to delight us and what ought to resonate in our hearts and what ought to capture our affections. It becomes kind of ho-hum. It becomes, dare I say it, ordinary. And the great calling to enter into the monotonous joy of infancy, the great calling and privilege to rehearse over and over again, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And to have that foundational truth arrest the soul, capture the affections, 
whereby we enter into that childlike joy and delight in this wonderful truth. So folks, that's what I'm after this morning. That's my goal. That is my aim. And the text that is going to lend itself to this is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I invite you to follow along as I begin reading in verse 13. Paul proclaims, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Right back to verse 13, look at how Paul begins, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you. The next phrase, brothers, what? Beloved by the Lord. And what I want to do is unpack for you in these verses six features of this love. What it means to be loved by God. Six marks Six characteristics, six features. Here is the first. This love to be beloved by the Lord. This love chooses. Right back again, the 13th verse. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you. Chose you as the first fruits, or rather chose you from or since the beginning. Now, I am not going to unpack the complexities of the doctrine of election for you this day, to the disappointment of some, perhaps to the relief of others. What I want to do, however, is emphasize the importance of this doctrine. That God's love chooses us. It is important because it tells us that this love is undeserved and unmerited. God does not love us because of anything in us. There is absolutely nothing in us. There is nothing about us. There is nothing we have done, nothing we will do that in some way or fashion elicits this love. No, it is undeserved and it is unmerited. I want you to notice, secondly, that it is unchangeable and it is unassailable. Because it is a love that originates with God himself, not only is it a love that is not provoked by anything in us or caused by anything about us, but it is a love that cannot change. It is a love that cannot be assailed. It is a love that cannot be influenced or altered by anything outside of God. Because when we speak of this love, love 
that chooses. We are actually speaking of the love which the Father has for the Son. A love which is eternal. A love which is immortal. A love which knows nothing of ebbs and flows or highs and lows. And so the famous, famous English Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon a couple of centuries ago, he was out wandering in the countryside, out for an afternoon stroll with a friend of his, and it was a cold, rainy, blustery day, and they happened upon a small shed or barn, and on the top of this barn, there was a weather vane, and on the weather vane were these words, God is love, blustery day. And that weather vane was just spinning back and forth in the wind. And Charles Spurgeon got all agitated. He said, look at that up there. I don't like that at all. It seems to imply, it seems to suggest that God's love changes. And his friend put a hand on Charles Spurgeon's shoulder and just said, Charlie, or something to that effect, you need to calm down. I think you've misunderstood the message. The message is this, whichever way the wind blows, God is love. It is constant, it is unchangeable, and it is unassailable. Because this love of which we speak is the love of the Father for the Son. The second feature I want you to notice is this. This love saves so right back to the 13th verse. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits or from the beginning. Now notice, he's mid-sentence to what? There's a purpose here to be saved. How? Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And so he chose us to be saved. Why do we need to be saved? Look at what Paul says all the way back in chapter 1. Pick it up at the middle of verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 7, right in the middle of the verse. It's horrific in its detail. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Scripture makes it clear. There is an appointed day of judgment. Scripture makes it clear. The Apostle Paul proclaims it in Romans chapter 2 that we are building up for ourselves. We are gathering up for ourselves wrath that will be revealed on the day of God's righteous indignation. It's a mental image. It's supposed to conjure up a mental image. This idea of gathering up God's wrath, the dam that has been built, and that dam holds back the waters. But the rain falls for days on end, weeks on end, and the pressure builds and builds and builds against that dam. Until eventually the cracks appear, the cracks widen, and the dam gives way as the torrent rushes through. That's the image in Romans chapter 2. It's horrific. That there is a day of judgment, and yet here is this love that steps in. This love that chooses us, chooses us for a purpose to be saved 
from that wrath. To be saved from that judgment. How? Look at how Paul explains how in the remainder of verse 13. Through. And he identifies two things. Firstly, through sanctification by the Spirit. When you hear that word sanctification, you need to be careful. Because it's used in a couple of ways in the New Testament. We hear that word sanctification and normally we immediately think in terms of growth in godliness. We think of growth in Christ-likeness. We think about putting to death sin and living life by faith in the Lord Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. That is how the word is often used. But in other instances in Scripture, the word sanctification simply means set apart. And I think that's what's in view here. That God chose us as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. What Paul is referring to is that initial moment of salvation. The Spirit of God entered in. And the Spirit of God set us apart. And the Spirit of of God gave illumination, whereby how did we respond? Belief in the truth. This is how He has saved us in a moment of time, by means of the Spirit setting us apart to God and us responding through faith in the truth. The Lord Jesus Christ declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so, yes, we believe in the truth. Yes, we believe in a series of propositional statements, don't we? Yes, we are confessional. Yes, there are doctrines, dogmas, whatever we want to call them, that are the essence of our faith. That's true. But even more to the point, we believed in a person. He who is the truth. And we followed the Lord Jesus in our mind's eye into the garden, didn't we? And there in the garden, we saw something, we heard something, and we felt something. There in the garden of Gethsemane, we saw the Lord Jesus prostrate on the ground, face in the dirt, groveling, sweating as it were great drops of blood. And we heard his anguish cry, let this cup pass from me. Oh, and we felt it. We felt that he was sorrowful even to the point of death. And I understood that the cause of all that was my sin. Did we not understand that? Did we not see it? That it was our pride that caused that. It was my short temper that caused that. My lust, my greed, whatever the case may be, my bitterness, you add the list of sins as long as our arm and longer. It caused all that. And then from the garden, we went to the cross. And there again, we saw the Lord Jesus, this pulverized mass of humanity suspended on the cross between heaven and earth. And we heard his anguished cry, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Oh, and we felt the earth tremble, did we not? As the earth shook, as he gave up his ghost, and as he bowed his head, and again we saw the cause that my sin was laid upon him. And that gathering storm, that coming day of judgment, passed over that scene and engulfed the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ swallowed 
it whole. Oh, we believed the truth. Not merely propositional statements. I don't care if you can get an A-plus on a theological exam. No, we believed in the Lord Jesus. We believed in who He is, why He came, what He accomplished upon Calvary's cross, and we applied it to ourselves. And in applying it, we took hold of Christ. And as the Spirit set us apart, and as we believed in the truth, God saved us. A feature, an expression, an unmistakable mark of his love. The third feature is this. Yes, it chooses. Yes, it saves. Thirdly, it calls. And so into verse 14, Paul begins to this. Immediately you should ask the question, to what? What's he talking about? He's building. And so what he has just said in the 13th verse concerning God choosing us as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So to this, to salvation, He called you through our gospel, another work of the Holy Spirit. He called us through the gospel. Now notice it's a purpose clause. There's an end in view so that, yes, so that we might know forgiveness of sins. Praise God. Yes, so that we might know peace with God and peace of conscience. Wonderful, tremendous blessings. But Paul has something very specific in view here. The middle of verse 14. So that you may obtain you the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what is this glory of which he speaks Jump back with me again into chapter 1 and just look at the 10th verse. When he comes, that is when the Lord Jesus comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. That yes, there is an appointed day of judgment. It is coming. And God, out of love, has saved us from it. And there is an appointed day coming when what? We will share and participate in the very glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think Peter sheds wonderful, illuminating light on this in his first epistle, chapter 1. There he tells us that according to his great mercy, according to his great mercy, God caused us to be born again to what? A living hope. Through what? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. To what? An inheritance. There are three words. I always get them mixed up. Is it unfading, incorruptible, undefiled, something like that, that is kept in heaven for you? That we have this great confident expectation. Yes, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what that coming will entail. Our resurrection from the dead. Not merely the resurrection of our bodies from the dead. But their reuniting with our souls. And the glorification soul and body. Our entire self. Whereby we will be conformed to the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our hope. 
And God has called us to this hope. And in calling us to this hope, we see something of His great love for us. You know, it's sad as we look around in our day. I try to engage people in this kind of conversation and more often than not get shut down. But as we just look around and as we engage with our neighbors, unsaved neighbors, unsaved family members, I'm often struck with this very simple question. Why are you here? And what are you living for? I'm actually even struck with a far more fundamental question. It is this. How do you get through life? I, I just don't understand. How do you get through life? How do you get through life when basically you believe you are nothing more than a mayfly? Now, I better clarify that. Do we have mayflies in Texas? Do we? It's a very Canadian thing. Yeah, we have them, don't we, here as well. Minnesota, definitely, where I'm from in Ontario, good night. What a nightmare when May rolls around. All those flies in the summer months, they lay their eggs in the waters, and then the winter sets in. And then once the ice breaks and the temperatures begin to, you know, hover at least above freezing, they all hatch in May. And those larvae, there they hatch and they become these flies. Do you know what the average lifespan is of a mayfly? 24 hours. That's it. 24 hours. What do they do? They feed, they breed, and they die. As I look around today, that's pretty much it, isn't it, folks? You feed, you breed. And you? And you die. No, we're created in the image of God. We've wandered far from home and are lost east of Eden, for sure. But the Lord Jesus Christ has stepped into time. And by stepping into time, yes, He has paid the penalty for our sins. Yes, He has secured forgiveness for all those who trust and believe in Him. And even, even equally important and glorious is this. He has called us to a hope. C.S. Lewis, I, I, I assume most of us are familiar with the Narnia Chronicles, the seven books. I don't know if you've ever made it right through to the end, but the ending is sheer brilliance. It's quite controversial, but I think it is sheer brilliance. He ends the seven novels by simply saying this, and all that these children experienced in their world and in Narnia was but the title page of a novel that has not yet even begun. What a tremendous way to look at your life. For me to look at my life. Nothing more than a title page, folks. The book hasn't even started yet. You haven't even got to chapter one. Oh, to cultivate that kind of eternal mindset and to take hold of this living hope to which we have been called and this tremendous manifestation of God's love for us. The fourth feature is this. This love compels. And so then into verse 15, notice how Paul begins the verse. So then, or therefore. I know grammar gets a little taxing, but it's extremely important when we're studying the Bible. Because that little phrase tells us what? That he's still building these are building blocks in his thought. So when he says, so then, what am I supposed to think? Well, I'm not just supposed to parachute in here. I'm to recognize he's building on what he has just said. And he has just told me that God chose me as the first fruits to be saved 
through sanctification by the Spirit, belief in the truth, and I've been called to this through the gospel so that I may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. In light of that, building on that, because of that, brothers, I exhort you, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. God's love compels. It compels us to stand firm and hold fast. Why did this church millennia ago, this church, this gathering of believers in this city of Thessalonica, why did they need this word from the Apostle Paul? Go all the way back to chapter 1 and just look at what he says quickly in the fourth verse. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in what? All your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. These believers are on the run. They're just not coasting through life. They are facing harsh opposition. They are facing diabolical persecution. You take that, you lift it, and put it back into our text, chapter 2, verse 15, and it, the light just kind of goes on, doesn't it? So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions God's word that you were taught by us, either as we preached it to you or as we have written to you, obviously referencing his first epistle. And it is only God's love that will compel us to stand firm and hold fast. It's only God's love that will compel us to stand firm and hold fast as we face opposition, as we live and navigate a world, a society that is becoming increasingly hostile and antagonistic to the Christian faith. It is only in light of God's love that we will be able to stand firm and hold fast as we engage with unbelieving family members, unbelieving neighbors, as we face difficulties in this life, as we face daunting challenges. Friend, please hear this. If our motivation is fear, we will end up looking ugly. Far too many ugly Christians out there nowadays because they're motivated by fear. We're not motivated by fear because we know how all this ends. We're to be motivated by love and the love of God, and a love of God that humbles us, a love of God that encourages us, whereby whatever comes our way, whatever we face, whatever hostility, and just however crazy and confusing this world gets, we stand firm and we hold fast because we have a living hope. We have a hope to which we have been called. And we have been called through the gospel. We have believed the truth because the Spirit has set us apart and go even further back because God has chosen us. Oh, His love chooses. It saves, it calls, and it compels. And number five, it comforts. Look now with me at verse 16. Now. And here Paul begins a very short, brief, pointed prayer. Now may 
our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts. Don't isolate the prayer request. Don't lift it out of its context because Paul is asking for something here, but he has already explained how God will answer this prayer. He has already explained how God has loved us. Verse 16, he's already explained how God has given us eternal comfort. He has just explained how God has given us good hope through grace. When we take these three realities to heart, God loved us. God has given us eternal comfort. God has given us good hope through grace. There's the answer to his prayer. May this God who has given us all that comfort our hearts. Because you see, as we grow in our appreciation of these truths, and as these are not mere abstract mental reflections, things to which we pay lip service, but these are present realities, vibrant truths in our lives, we will experience comfort. We will know comfort as we meditate upon the fact that God has loved us. That the Father loves us. That the Father loves us with the same love with which He loves the Son. And we will delight in the fact that the Son entered time and He has revealed this love. He loved us and gave Himself for us upon Calvary's cross. And then we will revel in delight in the fact that this Spirit who has sanctified us has been sent into our hearts to testify to that love. And we know that because we read in Romans 5 that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. By whom? By the Holy Spirit, whom He has given to us, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, and so God's love, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. The Father loves me. The Son reveals the Father's love. And the Spirit testifies to the Father's love. And as I live in the reality of that love, there is the answer to that prayer request. May God comfort our hearts. There was a gentleman by the name of Eric Barker, probably a name unfamiliar to, dare I say it, everyone, 1930. He left the shores of his homeland in England, and he went as a missionary to Portugal, 1930. Not a very pleasant place to live in 1930. Lack of basic amenities, food shortages, other problems. And on top of it all, the parish priest ruled with an iron fist. And Eric Barker uh, suffered and struggled and oftentimes was the object of open persecution as he seeked to proclaim the word. Uh, by God's grace, he established a few little churches. But in 1939, with the outbreak of World War II, the situation got even worse. And so Eric Barker decided it would be best to send his wife and their six children his sister and her two children, ten loved ones, back to England to wait, wait out Second World War. 
He bid them farewell at the port in Porto, in northern Portugal. And a few days later, on a Sunday morning, he received the telegram, ship torpedoed, all lost. That afternoon, that afternoon, he gathered with a little church he had planted in downtown Porto. I've been to the church, still exists to this day, a legacy to the man. And he uh, gathered with that small group of believers, maybe a couple of dozen or so. And he got up behind the pulpit and simply said to them, I'd like to let you know that uh, all my loved ones have arrived safely home. And he proceeded to preach God's word. They had no idea what he meant by that. They had no idea that when he said, all my loved ones have arrived safely home, he was referring to heaven. He was referring to glory. Should Eric Barker have preached that day? That's not the point. Would anybody have blamed him if he'd taken a three-month sabbatical? Certainly not. That's not the point. The point is this. The man was stirred by something. I met his second wife in Portugal. Eric Barker passed away in 1989. I met his second wife. I've met many who knew him and heard him preach firsthand. And a man who in the midst of such incalculable loss, and a man in the midst of such heart-wrenching grief, was a man who lived in the light of a living hope, and a man who was thoroughly convinced of one very simple childlike truth. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. The Father loves me. The Son reveals the Father's love upon Calvary's cross. And the Spirit seals and testifies to that love within my heart. Oh, this love comforts. We arrive finally at number six. The sixth characteristic or feature of this love, it strengthens. Follow along as I begin again at the start of verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and what? Establish them in every good work and word. That word establish is fascinating. You will find it in different places in the New Testament. One of the most interesting is in Luke's gospel account. You remember the parable of the poor man, Lazarus, who dies, and that rich man who refuses to minister to Lazarus, to feed Lazarus, to show any concern for Lazarus while living. Both men die. And that rich man goes to a place of torment. And Lazarus goes, we're called to paradise, Abraham's bosom. And there the dead man, the rich man, he calls out to Abraham. And he asks Abraham to send Lazarus to him, having dipped his fingers in water to cool his tongue. For he says, I am in torment here. And Abraham says to him, impossible. Impossible, why? Because there is a great chasm, here's the word, there is a great chasm fixed, fixed between you and me, immovable. 
That's the word here. Established. Fixed in place. Like a giant rock, a mountain. Immovable. Unassailable. May our God establish us in what? Every good work and word, a possible apart from his love. It is only as we bask in the radiance of his love. It is only as we delight in the pure joy of his love that we discover this kind of fortitude, that we discover this kind of stick to Not a word, but it should be. You know what I mean by it. That kind of stick to I will not be moved and stirred on and compelled and motivated by the love of God. We live a life devoted to every good work and every good word as we seek to live for the glory of His name. Did you get all six features? Some of you have been scribbling like crazy. I hope not doodling, but jotting down those six main points. Here they are again. It chooses, it saves, it calls, it compels, it comforts, and it strengthens. I want to speak to three people, and there may only be one in each of these categories today, and that's fine, all right? So I want to speak to three people in light of everything I have just said. The first is this to the unbeliever. Someone here, young, old, male, female, the unbeliever, uh, the individual who is still outside of Christ. As you've been listening to this, I hope your heart's been stirred a little bit. And I hope as a starting point, you're very clear on this. This love that I have been describing, you are on the outside looking in. I am not describing you. I am describing all those who are in Christ. I am describing all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're an unbeliever, what you need to hear is simply this. Simply this. In the words of Psalm 51, a king, King David, who lived long, long, long time ago. And the words are simply this. As you reflect and think upon your relationship with God, these are the words that ought to be on the tip of your tongue. The first is this, against you and you only have I sinned. That's the starting point. I want to be as clear on that as I possibly can be. Against you, God, and you only have I sinned. And the second is simply this, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. If you're an unbeliever, oh, I, I pray to God you're hearing this and listening to this and give it the attention it merits. That as you stand before God right now, you are an object of His wrath and righteous indignation. And all you are doing your entire la- life is storing up and gathering wrath that will be revealed on the judgment day. But the Lord Jesus Christ has interposed his precious blood. And there you have it in Psalm 51. All that God requires of you against you and you only have I sinned. And wash me on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will be whiter than snow. The unbeliever. I want to speak also to the wanderer. I'm really reaching here. 
But I'm supposing in a group this size, there's at least one. Someone who's not doing so well. You know who you are. Don't raise your hand by any means. Uh, but you're not doing well. And you have not been doing well for some time. Wrestling with the same old sinful patterns. Habitual sin still weighing heavy upon you. Racked with guilt and regret. And there's only one way to describe you. You feel like a bone out of joint. There was a gentleman by the name of Robert Robinson. He was saved through the preaching of George Whitfield during the Great Awakening. Power back in the 1700s. Robert Robinson was converted to the preaching of, uh, of George Whitfield, and a few years later, age 23, he penned a beautiful hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Some of you are smiling, you know it. Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. A few years after that, he fell into sin, gross sin, unimaginable sin, and he began to run from God, racked with guilt. And the years passed, and he lived in that tormented state until one day he was traveling by coach. And across from him in the coach sat this young woman in her early 20s, and she had her nose in a book, and it was a hymnal. And she was reading away, flipping the pages, and humming along with some of the hymns that she was singing. And finally she stopped and she said, Excuse me, sir, we do not know one another, but can you help me to understand what this means? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It is a line from Robert Robinson's hymn, his own hymn. He broke into tears. He was a basket case, absolutely broken. And through his tears, he simply said to that woman, young lady, I wrote those words years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds to be able to go back in time. She didn't know what to say. It wasn't what she was expecting. Didn't know how to engage him. And then an absolute flash of sheer brilliance she looked down again at her hymnal and read these words. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy. Oh, something about poetic language, isn't there? Streams of mercy, never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God, he to save my soul from danger interposed his precious blood. And that was it. The Lord Jesus brought that wandering sheep home. You may need to hear that today. You may simply need to be reminded that Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that great and glorious truth ought to break yours and my heart for sin. And to remember that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'd like to speak to a third person. It's the discouraged. Again, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm guessing there are a few here this day. The discouraged. This love chooses us, it saves us, it calls us, it compels us, it comforts us, 
and it strengthens us. Even in the deepest, darkest valley, when there is no light at the end of the tunnel, oh, to return again the monotonous joy of infancy, to return again to that simple yet profound biblical truth that Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Or as the hymn writer Augustus Toplady put it, the work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen, and never was forfeited yet. Things future, nor things that are now, nor all things below or above, can make him his purpose forego. Or what? Sever my soul from his love. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that by your Spirit commensurate with the needs of each one gathered here this day, that you might apply your word deep down within our hearts. For the unbeliever, we do intercede on their behalf and pray that you would be merciful and that this, in accordance with your infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, might be, indeed be the day of salvation. For the downtrodden, the discouraged, and the disappointed, we pray that our heads and hearts might be lifted up to look again at your great love for us and for each and every one of us. We pray that as we celebrate Christ's coming into this world, that we might yet again stand amazed at the Lord Jesus and stand amazed at that great love with which you have loved us. Hear our prayers as we ask them. Receive our worship and thanksgiving as we offer it. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you.